2: On this week's episode of Homebrewing DIY, we're just back and it feels good. It's been a long six month break and it feels good to be making podcasts again. Now, this week we have Aaron Bandler and Ryan Packmeyer both on the show. We're gonna talk about their six month project that they've been doing the entire time we haven't been making the show called the Parade of Pilsners. And it's gonna be a fun little project to go through. So stick around while we discuss it this week on homebrewing, DIY. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, the show covers it all. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about the Parade of Pilsners. I have Ryan Packmeyer and I have Aaron Bandler both on the show. We're going to talk about their ongoing six-month-long project that they did over the winter, where they made all kinds of different types of pilsner all using the same yeast cake. Uh, It's a great conversation and I hope you stick around for the show. But first, I'd like to just really discuss the reason why we had to take a long break. It's been kind of a long six months for me. I I obviously have a job and and my job workload doubled and that was really tough. And then on top of that, my mother had been diagnosed with cancer and she was in another state and it was a lot to deal with so in all reality something had to give and uh it had to be the podcast for a while now that said i am on the other side of all of that uh you know the sad news is that my mother's cancer didn't end well and uh you know cancer's a bitch and 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 does what it does but in the end uh one of the cool things that I can say on the other side is that now that I have more time and can actually invest in doing a podcast, I'm excited. It's definitely something that I'm passionate about doing and I'm excited to just get back to it. So, you know, for those of you who are listening to the show right now, I'm just glad that you stuck with me through a pretty long hiatus of me not making episodes. But that said, I am in the process of right now having more episodes coming out on a weekly basis and i'm excited to get them put out i have some great interviews lined up and stick with us because uh homebrewing diy is only going to be better also a couple of things that i've also made decisions on i'm actually going to pull back on some of the ads I, i think that it's one of the things where i i i'll probably do ads at the very, very beginning and at the very, very end. But for the most part, I'm actually going to pull back on just ads on the show in general. I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, it's there. But uh, I don't know. I just want to do podcasting for the love of it. It's not some plot to make money, even though it does help in having some income in saying, hey, all of the money that has ever been invested into this podcast just goes right back into the podcast. So just note that, but, you know, head on over to Patreon. You can donate there. I will have a little bit of ads, but I'm definitely going to cut back on the amount of ads you hear. And so hopefully that that helps for everything and helps for everyone that listens. All right. So I guess we should just hop into the episode. It's, it's time to get into the interview where we're going to talk about the Pilsner Parade. to introduce ryan packmeyer and aaron bandler to the show they've both been on the show in previous episodes never together but uh i'm excited to have them both and here's the thing ryan he he's a bgc bjcp certified judge he's a contributor to homebrewing diy and he's also a renowned beer author i'm gonna say you're now renowned and uh And then we also have uh, Aaron Bandler, who you've heard on shows such as our Homebrew Hack show, and he's also my neighbor across the street, and he has really come into his own. I got to admit, Aaron's making better beer than I've ever made. And so I'd like to welcome both of you to the show. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. It's great to be back. It's great to be together, (laughs) Ryan. Finally, together at last.
1: <laughs> Since we don't brew together, we just make batches, split batches. Yeah. It's good to.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I do. I, Ryan comes up with the recipes and supplies the ingredients, but I do all the work. So that's the arrangement we have currently.
1: My it contract brewing I mean, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, they, they and that, and that, that's a good intro into why we have you both on the show. One of the things that... It's been a while since I've made a podcast. I'm excited to be back. And the entire time that this show was on hiatus, you two have been doing this really cool project. You call it the Pilsner Parade. And why don't one of you just explain what the Pilsner Parade
1: is and how you kind of came up with this idea? Aaron can uh, explain it since he came up with the name. I came up with the name.
0: The Pilsner Parade is... Just what it sounds like. It's a parade of pilsners, one after another, after another, after another, after another. So the backstory here is that Ryan approached me around. So we're recording this in April. Ryan approached me back in like, I think it was December, maybe, maybe even November. I Mm -hmm. can't remember now. But um, he said, hey, I want to do this French style pilsner using all French malts and all french hops and i had never heard of a french style pilsner i said okay that sounds cool so we did that and then while that one was fermenting he was like hey i kind of want to try this other pilsner i want to try this japanese style pilsner and i was like ryan what are you smoking no one's ever heard of a japanese style pilsner and he was like no no it's a thing like we it's the same similar but we use you know flaked rice in the in the malt bill whatever so anyhow we we ended up coming up with these two pilsners and i thought you know what ryan why don't we this is you know, since I'm doing all the work. I like to. I want to save myself some work. I said, "What if we just uh, transfer the first Pilsner into you know out of the tank on the same day as we? And by we, I mean me. Brew the second batch, and we'll just you know chill it from the kettle right onto the yeast cake from the first one, and we'll just you know, pitch it right on top of the, of the yeast from the first one. Right. And so we do that. And then I'm like, you know, idea goes off and I'm like, how many, how many of these do you think we can do? And Ryan says, oh, according to my calculations, I think uh, we could do five to 10. And I said, all right, let's shoot for five. So uh, fast forward a couple months, we now have our fifth beer in kegs um, and uh, we got five Five essentially Pilsners. The last one isn't quite a Pilsner, but we got five batches out of one um pitch of thirty four seventy dry thirty-four seventy was what started at the beginning, and we just pitched um or rack what is what's the word? We transferred one rack, I guess. We racked one beer right on top of the yeast cake, one after another. Um and that was the Pilsner Parade. So five Pilsners. <laughs>
2: And and so let's let's talk about the first Pilsner, which is the French style Pilsner. Ryan, since you came up with the recipe, uh, what inspired this beer? How did you come up with the idea? And what were all the ingredients in this beer? And by the way, everyone who's listening, I have I have had I think all of these beers at this point, except for maybe the You've most. You've not had the ones. last
0: one because it hasn't been packaged yet. It's still carbonating, but you don't worry, you'll get it.
2: Yeah. So I've had. Four of the five beers here, all of them solid. I mean, killer, killer, killer uh, pilsners here. And so well, let's talk about the French pilsner and, and, and maybe sure. what the ingredients are there.
1: Um, maybe like a year ago, Dan Moore, who's been on uh, for pressure uh, fermenting loggers, been on your podcast before. Dan Moore and I were talking about different types of lagers and pilsners. And we were talking about a French style Pilsner, where we just—it's basically a German Pilsner with all French malt, the Franco-Belgian malt, and then using French hops. Um, I think Dan used different kinds. He made one, uh, but I wanted to use the Stressel hops because they're super low alpha acid, which is very similar to—it's basically like a noble German hop, but it's French. Um, and it adds a lot of flavor, and it's not going to be harsh or too uh, sharp at all. So it's basically making a German pilsner with all French ingredients. Um, at some point in the last year, Beer and Brewery magazine came out with an article from Notch Brewing in Massachusetts, and they make amazing lagers, where they talked about an actual historical French-style pilsner. But that beer had corn in it, and yeah, I'm not a big... you know, If you want to use heirloom corn or something, that's fine, but I'm not a big fan of corn and lager, to be honest. So I'd never consider going that route. Um, but I pitched a bunch of pilsner ideas to Aaron. I'm like, hey, let's do another pilsner. Um, here's six ideas for pilsners. Which one do you want to do? And he's like, let's do the French one. That sounds fun. Um, so it's, it's the same exact thing you would do for a German pilsner, just with French pilsner malt and Strasselspalt hops. And the Strasselspalt hops are probably, they add a little more fruitiness and a little more floral maybe than you would get from German hops. But nothing, uh, nothing out of bounds. Like It tastes just like a pilsner. It's a really good, uh, tasty pilsner.
2: Well and Strzel Spalt tends to be, at least in my my past uses of it, it's been around like two point five alpha, alpha acid. I've seen it down as high as one point as low as one point five alpha acid.
1: What 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 were the alpha acids on the Strzel Spalt that you used for this batch? It's, it's below three. Do you remember Aaron? I want to say two eight, but I could be just making that up.
0: I have um I have written on my brew father two point two percent, but I'm not sure if that's the default 20. value for or if that's actually the the one that we used, I don't know that I don't, re- I don't recall, but it wasn't, it wasn't far off. Cause, um, so it was somewhere around in the mid twos probably, but, um, this is I a, do want to interject a, this is, this is close to a smash beer, but we actually, we did, we, we ended up with targeting an IBU of around 38 and we used some Magnum, uh, as a
1: bittering addition. Um, so that's right. We did half, half smash. the, uh, half the bittering, I think was Magnum, um, didn't want to do all the all the bittering because I, I think it can come across a little harsh. So, but we supplemented well, because I, we didn't have nearly enough stressful spalt to uh, <laughs> to bitter, and it would be a lot of hot material at that. That's little right. Little yeah, yeah, circuit. yeah. That's we, exactly I, I what I was, I was gonna question. I was gonna ask. Mag. Is it? Yeah yeah I worry so if you use all magnum, which is high alpha acid, I worry about it being too sharp and harsh. If you use all stressful Spalt, which if it's at two point two that's super low or like Tetninger can be really low too like that. If you use all of it, then it can get kind of like you know vegetal or even too grassy, just too much hot material potentially uh, depending yeah. on how much you filter and stuff so uh this was kind of like splitting the difference and uh I think it came out good
2: yeah, that uh, was actually too. the question I was gonna ask was how did you if you're using such a low Alpha acid, how did you keep it from getting grassy to get it to a higher IBU? But Magnum makes sense because clean, we cut it. neutral, bitter, right? That, that's like mm-hmm. what you get from Magnum. It, it's almost Ma- Magnum's that secret hack if, you're, if you need bitterness, but you don't want to use a lot of vegetal, hey, 13, 14% alpha acid Magnum will get you there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't impart a lot of flavor, it's d- usually just straight no. bitter.
1: And if you want to be cheap, you can use all magnum. And like, it's not bad, but if you use all magnum, again, you get kind of like this sharp, it's more sharpness than you want from a Pilsner, I think. So I I'd, I'd never like to go all magnum on the bittering additions. I try to use as much uh, low alpha acid varieties as possible, but cutting it, if especially in a lot of, if you're going really bitter, I think ours was like, what, 36, 38 IBUs is pretty, pretty bitter. Um, cutting yeah, it around by there. Magnum, I think makes sense.
2: Yeah. And, and then. And one of the... Th- this is a 10-gallon batch, everyone, just so you... Because you, when they you, when they were saying, hey, there was three ounces of, of things in there, yeah, this was a 10-gallon batch. And so looking at at, at this particular beer, well, let, let's talk a bit about the process of how you guys generally make Pilsners just normally, right? When you make it... One of the things that I, I've noticed about your Pilsner Parade and, and what's made it so just really awesome to be next to and drinking the beers from is that all of these beers came out crystal clear. I mean, just golden, beautiful, uh, very little haze. What are you guys doing to get such clear, crisp, clean Pilsners through this entire process?
1: I think Aaron can answer that pretty well. Cause he's, uh, he's the one filtering it and doing, I agree doing a damn good job at it.
0: Yeah. So, well, I appreciate that. We did, um, a, a couple different, techniques or rather a couple different combinations of the same techniques um throughout the course of it um some of it was you know fairly standard just like cold crash it in the tank um and let everything drop out in the tank and then transfer i I was using biofine clear as the fining agent in the kegs um and i used like whirlflock in the boil and such but um yeah mostly just like pretty standard cold conditioning um, and um, there was yeah and other times we were doing um, we were actually bringing the beer down to about 40 or so, not quite a full-on cold crash and letting it condition in the tank at about 40 and then I would transfer it at 40 and then fine and cold crash at that point. Um, and all, all all of these things had similar results um, I th- think the two biggest things are some sort of finding agent and very cold temperatures, and that'll get you there. And time
1: as well, patience and time.
0: Yeah, time. Yeah, Which patience is hard for me with
1: these loggers, but um, <laughs> we didn't I was rush able any of these beers, though. I think uh, the youngest one was the youngest one, like eight weeks probably for brew day to drinking it. Mm, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe five or six. From yeah, when I we actually Kegnan drank it? Or uh, from... I don't know. I thought they were longer. I don't know.
2: i don't know if you're aaron he's just drinking them the whole whole, well yeah that's
1: right yeah we have a different perspective right because aaron will be like yeah it's drinking good yeah that's true and then uh, like two weeks later we'll can some of it because the homebrew club got a canner that's a piece of info that might be relevant to that and uh then we'll split a keg up and i'll put it on my draft and not drink it for another week so by the time i've tapped it it could be like two and a half months old Aaron's i do I, I
0: do a decent amount of sampling i like to do uh, quality <laughs> control or quality assurance you know i like to sample it throughout the cold conditioning process just to kind of observe the changes that happen and then <laughs> it eventually and well and, and and it's it's helpful because i can sort of track the general clarity of it over the course of mm-hmm. a week or so and eventually it'll drop you know fully bright and then i'm like okay it's it's ready um mm-hmm. And yeah. I'll usually let it sit another few days until I can um, get organized to do a canning run.
1: No, I love getting a message, you know, at like eight at night. And it's just like, hey, this beer's tasting pretty good right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's the one benefit. Just had a sip of the lager; it's, uh, it's dropped out. <laughs> I'm the one who controls the. Uh, yeah, the, uh, I'm the one who controls the supply um so i yeah so the so the the french we start with the french and that was all basically a smash and should we go on to the japanese yeah. one i think yep. ryan
2: you yeah the japanese one your... but sure. yeah talk about right, the brother. recipe because i i had this beer and in i gotta admit this your japanese version came out really solid uh obviously very different than a Sapporo or something like that. I don't think that's actually what you were going
1: for. But in the yeah, end... That, that's probably it, a,
0: an important distinction for us to make is that that's
1: not what yeah. this was at all. Yeah. I mean, so essentially, like you call this almost, you almost call this like a rice pilsner. You don't even have to use the word Japanese necessarily, because when people make Japanese pilsners, been- they often use the uh, what's the name of that stupid hop? That separate invented uh, uh, Ace. Uh, sriracha sriracha Ace. Ace, yeah yeah so every time someone makes a lager called japanese <laughs> no, it was invented by the japanese but they don't even use it and it tastes like crap at least oh, in my like, opinion like well, a no, lot I'm of people like, yeah sorry so, I, mean, I just a lot of people don't like it, including me, obviously. And uh, so, anytime you have something called Japanese, it's like, oh, this hop isn't very good. So I wanted to take the approach of like it's like a rice lager. It's like twenty percent flaked rice, so it's going to dry the beer out more. Um, it's going to give kind of this light, like nutty's too strong of a word for the flavor on it because it's just white rice, flaked rice. But it gives kind of like a different sort of flavor to go along with that pilsner malt, that grainy pilsner malt, and then we use. Edelweiss hops, which are a special blend of hops from this guy, I forgot his name, Um, he's in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, he runs a company called Hop Heaven, and he's like a BJCP national or master guy, and he's really known for picking out really good hop lots, and a lot of people have talked about how great his hops are over the years, so we decided to order some, and the Edelweiss blend is a blend of American and German, I believe. Um, And he blends them to taste or to smell every year. And he releases this special blend called Edelweiss. So we ordered a pound or two of that. And uh, we put a bunch of hops in there. I want to say it was like 30-ish, low 30s IBUs. So a little bit less bitter than the French one. Because the flaked rice is going to thin it out a bit. We didn't want it to be overpowering. A little bit of flavoring hops, I believe, as well. And then we just... uh, Yeah, good memory. With a traditional style go ahead
0: 32 ibu and uh bone dry this is the driest lightest mm-hmm. one that we made sorry i cut you off there
1: no, no it's fine no, what did
0: it, I, what I, did I, it the finish was was like, so
1: pale so pale it was like 06 or something double 06 or something it finished really low um, 05,
0: 005. let me look i'll look at the batches the batch history here
1: um, I mean, I could I could drink it fine now, but when I first tasted it, it had like this dryness at the end that took like four sips to get used to. It was just so much dryness at the end. Uh, but now, it's, yeah, I like, finished it's around like seven up. or
0: eight. I, was that okay? I
1: didn't I think it was that high. Um. Yeah, it was around eight. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, around five percent alcohol. But yeah, that one. Uh, I don't know. On my board, I think it's could call it a rice lager, but it's it's basically it.
0: We used some of the um, we used some of that French we used some of that French Pilsner malt in this one too. We had
1: a, had a mix of Heidelberg and Belgian, yeah, Heidelberg. Oh. Heidelberg is the super pale Pilsner malt from best malt German German malt. We're just using what's on hand because I mean when you're taking there's no there's no Japanese Pilsner malt, so we're just using good good quality European malt what we have around.
2: And, and i i want to say the the look of this beer was so pale like it was i i, I want to say it, it it you know when you have like a german pilsner it has this very deep golden color and with that twenty percent of rice, it actually became a very, very. It, it was it, it was definitely gold, but it was like mm-hmm. it was almost like
1: a kind of a whitish gold. It was it was much lighter. Yeah, the no, heidel I think I'll, Heidelberg um, is literally the palest German malt too. So, that
0: yeah, helps. I'll share that for for better or for worse. My non-craft beer drinking friends, this was their favorite one of the. Pilsners that they tasted. It's the dry. It's the most like Miller Light,
1: I guess. It's the least, uh the least hop, the least hoppy or the least bitter, even though it's like thirty, whatever, thirty two IBUs yeah, yeah, yeah. or and whatever. It's, it's, and uh, it's pale. It's, yeah, exactly. And it's it's, it's still, and the you know, straw, it's still pretty hoppy or pretty bitter for a typical, than that. Uh, you know, American light lager drinker.
2: <laughs> hey, it was five percent. It was really pale. It was clear.
1: It was super. Drinkable. It wasn't. It was super drinkable. It was. A, it was a good I mean, they're drink. all they're all super drinkable to me, but yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, when you get when you start getting like forty IVUs, it's now it's now a one less of the things. Is, this, is,
2: this is the first beer you guys pit repitched onto the yeast cake. But let's talk about like yes, we've all we've all made loggers, right? And when you make a lager... And you you pitch at like forty eight degrees, right? Uh, that that's mm-hmm. at least in an ideal world we want to we want to be in those low fifties for the fermentation. But you're going to pitch cold and bring up to warm, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you're pitching that cold, it takes a while, right? Even if you do a big pitch, pitch. Let's say you do a three liter yeast starter, you drop it in. It's going to have a lag time because you're just pitching so cold. No matter how healthy the yeast is, but one of the things that I think was cool about this experiment is that as each generation went and the yeast got more healthy and got used to actually brewing beer, what well, what was that lag time like when you pitched onto the yeast cake?
0: It was incredible. I am a I am a convert now. I used to only pitch <laughs> fresh dry yeast into every batch that I did. For some reason I had in my mind that like fresh yeast is gonna be better and i could not have been more wrong the first batch that we did had a long lag time and it, it really dragged on that primary dragged on and on and on to the point where we were like is it stuck is it still going what's the, what's going on here and that second one it just like it, it just took off like a rocket and it finished in you know in less than half the time of the first one um so you know overall like as we got through this parade if you will it got the attenuation got quicker and quicker to the point where like the last one was almost like kvike type of time frame you know it was done like inside of five days for a logger, for like a real logger. you know it's what it's the it's you know i was pitching on top of like 15 pounds of yeast so <laughs> like that's how much true was in the bottom of the tank at that point but um it was really
2: really impressive another, another good
1: reason for filtering yeah for <laughs>
2: Yeah, so just thinking through, uh, l- l- let's talk about beer number um, three. Yes.
1: What was that it like? was. It uh, was number three, Chuck Pilsner, right?
0: Number three was, a, yeah, a sort of traditional bohemian Pilsner. Um, Weirman floor-malted bow pills, and we didn't use saws, though. We used... Um, no, te- we no we saws. didn't use saws we used no. saws and we saws and, Tettnigger. and... Tettnigger, yeah this is like uh, a half check malted, beer n- i mean <laughs> 98 97 and a half percent floor malted bow pills and two and a half percent munich just for that little yeah. slightly slightly more copper so now we're getting a little darker I w- i'll say sort of if I, if we had it to do over again, not that it would really make a difference, but I would start, I would have started with the Japanese Pilsner. You know, we didn't really know that we were doing this project when we started it, but generally like for something like this, when you're repitching on the same yeast, there's always a little bit of the last beer that gets left behind. So start with the lightest one and then go from there. Um, We did that only slightly out of order, but by the third one, we were kind of, we had, we had our the rest of our stuff planned out. So now we're getting a little bit more, um, a little darker and a, a quite a bit hoppier. This one, the IBU is targeting like 45. Sorry, I was going to say there was one thing that when you mentioned cleanliness, I do um, pressure transfers as best I can. I, my tank doesn't hold proper pressure, but I basically, I, I hook up my CO2 tank I've have a little ball lock post installed on the lid uh, on a tri-clamp fitting. And I like to um, basically, you know, transfer so that there's no oxygen introduced to the beer. And so uh, I end up going through a lot of CO2. But basically when I'm done transferring, the tank is empty, the yeast is at the bottom, and the whole tank is filled with CO2. And I don't open the lid until the next beer is going in. So there's really not much opportunity for like contamination or oxidation or anything like that until the next beer goes in and then the yeast is eating all that oxygen and stuff so uh, that was just something i wanted to point out process wise that i thought was important for keeping the yeast healthy and for keeping everything kind of moving nicely
1: yeah it keeps all the beers fresh too it's i think it's super integral to uh how well these beers came out they're super clean super
0: flavorful i'll I'll sort of I'll say like as a side note, Coulter introduced me and said I've come into my own. I appreciate that. I'll say like the the number one thing that I have that I credit towards like making more consistently good beer is limiting oxygen uh, in post fermented beer entirely. Like every single style. now every single batch that I do now doesn't matter what it is. It never touches air once the lid goes on the tank, you know, even when I dry hop, I'm purging with CO2. Um, And so that for, you know, for your listeners out there who are wondering, like, what should I focus on to make better beer reliably? That was the thing that worked the the most for me. So just a little tip.
2: I agree. I agree. Cold site oxidation is like the thing that I think that if you're trying to make commercial quality beer, that's a a thing we should all be focusing on. Right. And, Mm -hmm. That, and I'll be admit, ten years ago when I first started homebrewing, we were just getting away. Like at that time, people were just getting away from doing secondaries and carboys, right? Yeah.
1: Remember those days?
2: And, mm-hmm. and oxygen, they were like, "Oh, don't stir it up. Try not to get as much oxygen." There will be a layer. <laughs> take of take CO2 the lid on off.
1: It. Uh, top the hops in. Yeah, throw the hops in the beer with the lid off, and then uh, yeah, put the put the lid back on. And yeah, it's, bottling uh, buckets. Remember the bottling buckets day, right? Like, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm uh and i just and got so, rid of i'm getting rid of two
0: of those now nobody wants them they're 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 going into the recycling no one wants my bottling buckets
2: <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah these are the things that like if, if you want to make better beer cold side oxidation is huge right uh i i just think that it's a it's an easy way to improve your beer quite quickly and i would actually put that up almost above i would actually put cold side oxidation is something you could do without a huge equipment investment right uh, you're exactly. you're looking at it's things like hey if i want fermentation control there's a big equipment investment there right i've got to have a fridge i've got to figure space, out a way yeah. space i got to, i got to figure out ways to keep things cold the whole process with uh, with maybe some sort of uh, algorithm to keep it in to check right or at least a a dual mode a dual mode con- temp controller, but but the thing here is is that cold side oxidation. You could use kegs. Like if you're if you're to kegging, you could literally just use fermenting and kegs. Use a spunding valve. You could transfer from keg to keg, and you could be that's what I do most of the time
1: when I make beer on my own. Yeah, so, I just do it yeah. in the kegs. I, cu- I cut off the bottom half inch to one inch, and uh, that's what I use for primary, and then into another. And you can even use the spunding, and you can put you know you can hook it up to the second tank while you're primary fermenting and that can purge your second tank for you so you don't even need, exactly. to, need to use the CO, co2 to yeah, do that's it that's cool <laughs> yeah, yeah see i go through a lot exactly of I, me too <laughs> i use the
0: um the ss brew tech the brew bucket you know the uh not the not the fancy uni tank ones but like the one it's got the conical bottom but it's the stainless steel bucket and the, they have the um they sell like a, a lid, a, a li- an aftermarket lid for it that has like a dome shape and it has a tri-clamp fitting on the top and I got a little uh, ball lock post tri-clamp attachment and I can basically hook up my tank to that and that's how I do it. Uh, it doesn't hold pressure like a keg, but it gets the job done. And it holds oh, a lot of pressure. Transferring you one for one
2: or two PSI. Tank. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you're looking yeah. at one or two PSI for a transfer. It's not like you need... Uh, you, yeah, you don't so need fifteen. It, it, I don't PSA. have. I don't have much trouble with
1: transferring. Yeah. Um, all right. The anyhow, only we'll downside work, is you can't naturally carbonate. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Sorry.
0: Well, I'm um, a yeah, <laughs> but I don't have like nine hundred dollars to blow.
1: <laughs> the unit tanks are beautiful. If you're, if I wasn't using kegs, that would be what I would jump to uh, next. Unit. I love unit tanks. Anybody's.
0: Um, if any of your sponsors are listening and they want to send me a unitank, Tank, I'll uh,
1: I'll
0: come on the show and talk all about it.
1: Um, last last Spike, thing about the check. Czech- are you
0: listening?
2: <laughs> Spike
1: Spike is not listening. Uh, last thing about the uh, Czech beer. So the two and a half percent Munich Mall. Um, Sometimes people put, like, melanoidin in there, and it sweetens the beer, and they try to, like, replicate decoction. We actually did a decoction on the Czech beer, but we wanted to kind of make it different because all these beers were going to have all Pilsner malt for the most part. So it's like, let's use a little touch of Munich malt. It's still very fermentable. We'll still get a really well-attenuated beer. Let's cut it in half with RO water so it softens the beer up just like the beers in Czechia. We already have soft water, but we wanted to soften it some more. Um, So this is just a way to differentiate when you're making five beers of the same style and just try to get... You know, they're all using the same yeast already, so we're already working against that. We don't want five beers that taste like the same house character. So one we decoct, we throw a little Munich malt in, use some Aro water to change it up. Um, These are just ways to kind of uh, vary it so that all the beers taste a little different on tap.
2: Let's assume that somebody here doesn't know what a decoction is if they're listening.
1: What, What is that process and how did you do it? So t- typically, a decoction is you take you're doing a step mash already. So you might mash in at say 144 degrees. You would take one third of the mash out after your 40 minute rest, and you would boil that. And you'd boil it for five or 10 minutes, for example, maybe 15 Constantly minutes. Today, stirring. Type of beer. Constantly, Constantly stirring. Constantly stirring so you don't, so you don't scorch it. it. If you scorch the beer, you you'd you basically ruin the beer. And then you add it back to that mash and it raises it from like 144 to say, you know, 160 degrees or 155 degrees, depending on, you know, what, what kind of volume you have and what you're doing. Um and what that does, in my opinion, it's so subtle, but it adds kind of this little graininess. Traditionally, they would do that in order to do a step mash in Germany. It was like a traditional way to go above, above this, um, up the steps. Um, but it adds kind of a graininess. Um, you're already getting high attenuation from the step mash. So maybe you're getting a little more from the decoction, maybe not. Um, but you add a little more body, a little more graininess, a little more maltiness. Uh, but we, we did is a different type of decoction that our friend, uh, Jim does. It's a little bit more efficient, I think. And what he does is he goes through his steps, 144 degrees for 40 minutes on this kind of beer, 160 degrees for around 30 minutes, 168 degrees for five or 10 minutes get your mash out. And then he raises the entire beer to a boil and just, you know, simmers it for five or 10 minutes or so. So instead yeah, whole of decocting, mash. yeah, the whole mash, um, so you don't have to take it out, bring it back in, you don't have to worry about hot side oxidation as much if that's something you're worried about, um, which I think is a thing. Um you don't have to worry about a second vessel, you don't have Disagree. to worry about you know, things cooling. Disagree about what? Hot side oxidation. We we could do a separate show on that. You know, I I've had Brian Anyhow.
2: I've had Brian Rabe from Low Oxygen Brewing, who would beg to differ on the show. Oh, okay. So I'm sure
0: <laughs> I, I just uh, haven't I, i've uh, just never experienced it anyhow i'm i'm, I'm sidetracking it so we're talking about the let
1: Dikashi. me say one thing let me say one thing about let me say one thing about hot side oxidation though um there are many yeah. studies that back up like <laughs> that uh it is a thing like it's not uh it's not a theory and it's not like a new thing but to the extent of what it matters is a big debate. You know, does it something I, tiny, I, tiny? Is it something just tiny? Is it something I, big? Like you know, yeah.
2: I, my personal opinion I'm a, is I'm at a brewery scale. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm gonna say, but I'm gonna say my theory is this: hot side oxidation matters at a brewery scale, right? When you're when you're making 3,000 gallons of beer in a or you're doing you know a, a Uh, let's just say you've got a a 200 barrel batch you're doing in a giant at scale oxygen means something because there's a lot of it right and Mm -hmm. so it's all the the thermal mass is a much different experience when you're talking about those scales and i I can see where studies because you have to also realize that when they do studies on beer it's always at that giant commercial scale because that's who has the money to do a study Right
1: you're absolutely correct it's
2: never it's never done at, at like a small homebrew scale of five gallons of beer, and so sure. and and who does those studies? It's like brewlosophy. like that that's a, that's about as deep as you get, which is even and those are super you.
1: small data points yeah, yeah I mean yeah. they' they're just, they'll even tell you that. just' they're just like they, hey take this with a grain of salt, yeah,
2: yeah, take it with a grain of salt. it's one okay. data point doesn't mean anything right and but I'm but not insulting brewlosophy
1: at all, I love them, but yeah they, yeah, they, too, they but expressly say that.
2: Yeah, and they say that because they understand that th- when you do a rigorous study, you have to have repeatable results. That is h- kind of how all of that stuff works. And so, m- my point is to get back to the the low oxygen brewing thing. Is yeah, I think that the studies actually do say that there's a, a hot side oxidation thing that can happen, but it's all done at a giant brewery scale. Uh, in German breweries, that are making you know.
1: Thousands and and I don't think it's like cold side oxidation where like if you have cold, cold side oxidation, you get a bad beer. Basically you get a flavorless beer. Yeah. Like uh, clearly there's tons of American breweries making great pilsners that are not obsessed with hot side oxidation. Same with German exactly. breweries. I've had plenty a good German beer that doesn't use low oxygen on the hot side. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a good versus bad thing like cold side oxidation. It's just like, do you want a maltier flavor? You can preserve that malt flavor by having a less there are German oil, beers with open fermentation. Yeah there are sure. german but that's beers usually just during primary water. where it's pushing uh, pushing everything out anyways but yeah true i got you true but anyways yeah that could yeah. be a whole podcast we'll we'll talk about uh, that could be Sorry, a whole I, der- beer- I derailed the parade there <laughs> uh, it's all it's all good that's that's, okay. that's all part of the show and so then, the fo- let's, the fourth, let's talk about beer, beer number us yeah, talk about beer number 4 italian uh, italian pilsner and uh, this was essentially a dry hopped german pilsner but we went a little different on this one again we wanted to vary it um cuz we're making five pilsners or Five Pilsners-ish. Um, they, I think we used uh, Middle Fruit and uh, Hollertal Blanc. I, I know we used Hollertal Blanc. Maybe it was Spalter was the other one. But well, we wanted to use Hollertal Blanc. What was Blanc it? We used Hollertal and, Blanc. Uh, and Tattnanger. <laughs> Tattnanger. Okay. I had <laughs> Tattnanger. That's why. All right. But uh, we wanted to use some Hollertal Blanc because how Blanc is one of those like noble adjacent hops. It's like kind of noble, but it has a little more flavor and uh you can get this kind of like nice grape flavor from it a lot of times. And I get some like nice sort of like dank diesel from it as well. Like this Italian pills, it's not super heavily dry hopped. Like an Italian Italian pills is not supposed to be super dry hopped. Um but this on this to me is like on the cutting edge of like what you would call it Italian pills versus like I don't know, hoppy pills or something. Uh it's really nice. And even Jim, who's one of the most traditional brewers you'll ever meet, he liked it. Um, so I think it's still within the Italian Pills range. But, uh, yeah, a lot of hop flavor, very tasty, very different from the first three. Um, what was your take on it, Aaron? How did, how did you dry hop it? Explain to them.
0: The Well, I'll say my, take, my overall take is that this is actually my favorite of the bunch. Uh, maybe I just really like the style because I'm sort of a uh, a a a hop head in recovery. Who's now, who's now big to lagers. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a very small dry hop. We did it. Um, we did it a little differently than I've dry hopped in the past, which was kind of interesting. So I, we, we raised the temperature on the fermentation and did a diacetyl rest at like, I don't remember 60, something like that. I could look, but doesn't matter. Diacetyl rest at whatever temperature. Um, Oh, wait. Actually, this is interesting. No, it was at 50. This one didn't really get a de rest. This one went for a long time at 54 degrees. It's pitched at 49 or so, 50. And then it was pitched at 54. Yeah, 50 we're not as concerned about it, super, super low in this We rose it to 54 so. after a couple of days. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, so then it sat, it sat for a while at fifty four, and then we started crashing it, and we brought it down to um, basically when we started crashing it, and I say I'm using the word crash lightly. We uh, we just brought it from fifty four back down a to forty, couple degrees a day back down to forty, and um, I dry hopped it when it was kind of at the last day of being at fifty four, and it's sort of dry hopped over the course of like two days it was not more than 48 hours as as you can tell i take very detailed notes um as it it slowly went down to 40 um it was you know dry hopping during that time and then i transferred it at 40 so it didn't get a full didn't get like a long dry hop like an ipa or, or a big dry it was very small and pretty quick and pretty cold
1: Yeah, the more I'm, I don't know, I mean, I know there's different theories, different schools of thought, but the more I've looked into it, the cold dry hop is nice and it doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be a lot of contact time to really get all the flavor out. That's at least been my experience. Um, Cold versus warm, I think, is more of an open debate, though. Some breweries do 66, 68, some breweries do 50. I've heard a lot of 50 degree dry hops, 60 degrees. It's. uh Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a matter of preference or what they've experienced, I guess. But I, I've been pretty I've, happy. I've seen with the a cold lot of I've seen a lot of derests where they bring
2: it up to up to sixty dry hop while it's at sixty. Yeah, we've done some yeah, yeah, at sure. sixty. Yeah. We did some there.
1: Yeah, yeah, we also rested some of these um, just to make sure they finished out and like dried out enough. But um, you know, sitting at fifty fifty four for a long time will also make sure you don't get diacetyl and thirty-four seventy, in my experience, as long as you don't rush it, it doesn't really get a lot of diacetyl. I've never experienced it with it after like sitting for a couple of weeks. You
2: will get some of the salt, the
1: sulfur smell out of it though. Right. Sulfur happens, especially if you rush it too. Yeah. 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 Get some sulfur. I mean, a little sulfur I think is nice personally, but yeah, you get like a really bad sulfur if you, uh, if you try to push it too too short. Yep. Yep. What, so what, what, I, I want to then, talk
0: about this last one because it's it was it's great with you know, but by the time we got to five, it was just remarkable how quickly these things were going. But are we ready to move on, <laughs> on to the last one or do we want to keep it? Yeah, talking let's about move on now. to number sure. five. Go ahead. Okay, so number five, so many will this was a controversial one because it's not really a pilsner. Uh, this is this is more what you would call the some would call the cold IPA others would call the India Pale Lager. Basically, at this point, so for the Italian, we dry hopped a little bit. Now, remember, I said earlier, like you always have a little bit of the last beer in your current beer. Well, you also, I, I'm not like removing the dry hops or anything. So there was there was hop matter now in the yeast cake. So at that point, I was like, all right, we're we're doing a, an IPL and then we're done. And so we did the IPL, got a huge dry hop because at th- that point, it's like, you know, screw it. Let's just throw a pound of hops in it and, you know, see what happens. But um, this one is, I was, I'm i looking at my notes now and it's phenomenal. So I pitched it at 55 degrees um, on the date was Monday, no, Sunday, March 20th. And by... Tuesday, March 22nd, it had dropped to 10.12. And by Wednesday, it was at 10.09. So from Sunday to Wednesday, it dropped from like 10.50 something, 10.56 roughly, to like 10.10 in three days, four days.
1: And we're using uh, BSG so uh, superfood on these go. two.
0: Oh, yes. Yes, that's good. I need, I need to get some more of that from you. I like that
1: you got the hookup. Um,
0: <laughs> I the, like uh, it as well. Yeah, this one went really quick. We uh, this, So this one, despite Ryan telling me to dry hop it the same way as we uh, dry hopped the Italian, I uh, ah, chose Aaron, to ignore that, that suggestion. After oh, shit. despite Ryan.
2: You said despite okay. Ryan. And cut I, am I back? Yeah, i back. back. Great.
0: Despite, despite Ryan. Ryan telling me... Despite Ryan telling me that we should dry hop this the same way we did the Italian, you know, kind of on the on the tail end, I ignored that and I dry hopped it the way I would normally dry hop an IPA, which is so we did this one we got did a long diacetyl rest at 60 for about from let's see, from March 23rd until April 3rd. So that is what like 2 weeks maybe um at 60 about in the middle of that two weeks is when i dry hopped it um and it was with a pretty big dose of cascade and citra oh and and some Amarillo too but more cascade and citra uh and then it, it it kept going i left it at that um temperature again for about four or five more days and then i did a a proper cold crash um all the way down to near freezing as quickly as possible. And so that was how I dry hopped this one. And it's got a lot of, I'm actually, I went, since this one hasn't been packaged, nobody's tried this one yet, but me, but I actually just went and poured myself a sample of it while, uh, while we were talking so that I could comment on it. But it's still, it's, it's, it's uh, slightly, um, it's, it hasn't quite cleared up to the point that I'm hoping it does, but it's clearer than it was when I last tasted it two days ago. Um and actually I was expecting when I, you know, I've made a lot of IPAs with Citra in the dry hop and I was expecting it to be kind of a Citra bomb just because Citra is so overpowering and we used a lot of it. But I'm actually getting a lot of more of the kind of drier, pineier Cascade in there as well. So I'm kind of pleased to see that Cascade was able to hold its own against Citra in the dry hop. Um But, yeah, so that was our – I don't know. Should we call it a cold IPA? Is IPL out? No one likes an IPL anymore.
1: IPL sucks, right? cold Uh, IPA. I don't care. uh, Cold IPA, I mean, Hoppy hoppy Lager, Hoppy Pilsner. Um, The guy Mm -hmm. uh, at Pizza Port in California has been making these for years. Just calls them IPA. So let's throw him on as an IPA on draft because he's tired of like trying to label it for people who don't give a shit and people buy it because it's IPA and it tastes like an IPA. So I can see that too. (laughs) Just go on IPA, right? Oh, actually I wanted to add one more. I wanted to add one more thing. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I want to add one more thing, which is that I got a bonus batch out of this. So in between the, um, uh, Italian and the, yeah, in between the Italian and the, um, IPA, Sorry cold ipa i um i carefully opened the lid of the tank and spooned out some of the yeast slurry yeah (laughs) thank you i spooned out some of the yeast slurry and uh pitched it actually at room temperature in basically a dry stout recipe so it it, uh, you could call it a a black lager or you could call it a dry stout but it was basically a a room temperature fermented dry stout on thirty four seventy. um and that one, same thing. It finished in like three days or something. It was awesome. So we actually got a bonus sixth batch out of this because I split the yeast a little bit there. But um, anyhow, that was the Pilsner Parade. I want to do it every year. It's a it's a great wintertime tradition. One of the things I wanted to add when we were talking about pitching on the yeast cake is that it's you know the hardest part for me for loggers is getting the wort to pitching temperature in the out of the kettle. I'm not. Um, I'm not used to like brewing with the seasons. I do a lot of my brewing like when the weather's nice and in the summer and stuff. And I I always have a hard time getting my wort cold enough in the summertime. Uh, we did this one through the winter, and actually, I was able to. I rigged up a fun little system that I, I was able to use. But I used a um like a sump pump, uh, like one you know, one of those submersible pumps, in a cooler of water, and I would go out and shovel snow we live you know we live in denver where it snows so i would go out and shovel some snow off of my grass into the cooler so i was pumping snow water through my counterflow chiller and that was how i was able to get the wart down to pitching temperatures so little um little homebrew hack for you guys who live in cold climates where there's reliable snow at least in part of your yard for the coldest months of the year you can use that snow to get your chiller water extra cold so you can get lager temps uh, without having to sit and wait for it to drop so uh because of that reason that's why i want to make this a wintertime tradition um but uh yeah it's uh, super super amazing how much the yeast will develop and you know how much how 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 um healthy it gets over time i i uh, it's been super
1: clean too super clean
0: yeah Super clean. When I when I emptied out the tank after this cold IPA, so there's maybe probably about twelve ounces of hop material that was added in there. But I when I finally emptied the tank, I weighed it before and afterwards, and there was about eighteen pounds of trube in the bottom of the tank. So from a one hundred gram thirty four seventy pitch, we ended up, and that actually include, that doesn't include the stuff that I spooned out for the other beer. So there's you know, over 18 pounds that was left behind, um, at the end there. So that's quite that's a, uh, quite a lot. That's of absurd. I, ho- I hope you
1: get a unit tank for next year's, uh, Pilsner Parade.
0: <laughs> I hope that's I need a bigger tank, tank just for, just to hold all the yeast. That's absurd. <laughs> Uh, well, and I actually, only... I tried
1: the I tried the cold IPA too, and uh, it's I tried it from the fermenter. So, oh yeah, you had uh, tried
0: You tried it from the tank.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I agree with your assessment. It was very good. The citrus dominant, but like the Cascade is there, and it was uh, it was a great great blend. I think I, li- I really like that combination. I'm going to use it in some West Coast IPAs. I think.
0: Yeah, it works because it's kind of a lighter bodied beer. It's not like it's not an IPA. It's not especially not. It's, this is nothing like a hazy IPA. Uh, where you kind of want those big, those big citra juicy bombs. Uh, this drinks much Mm -hmm. more like a West coast. Uh, and I'm actually quite happy with it. The citra is, is, is great. It's, it's there, but it's not like the main, it doesn't taste like orange juice.
1: Agreed.
2: Well, gentlemen, I have really enjoyed partaking through this entire process. It's, it's, it's been nice. Uh, just, just so any, anybody who's listening, uh, I've actually, as well as not, as well as not making podcasts for the last six months or so, I've also done a pretty bad job of of homebrewing. I've only been using my beer maker machine because you know it takes fifteen minutes and I can push one button. And so, uh, I, 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 I'm very soon gonna back brew a, a full five gallon batch. It, it's been a while, and I'm very excited about doing that. Uh, very, very. My kegerator has been empty for far too long, and so we're we're gonna have to fill that puppy back up. But yeah, the, I I, know. I, I had to return to... all the all your stuff I borrowed. I know, I know. I, I felt bad. I felt bad. I was like, I'm gonna brew a batch of beer, and he was like, Oh, here, have, <laughs> here, have all of your equipment back. <laughs> have, have, all, have all
0: your equipment back. <laughs> Colter has, a, has uh, a tilt. When Aaron saw, made I that, got, I had I, I had an extra tilt from this.
2: <laughs> yeah you know it, it, some neighbors borrow sugar we borrow grain and in, in in electric homebrew setups so
1: <laughs> First, could be worse, right?
2: yeah, yeah. W- welcome to Colorado uh, so it, it, the funny part about the the this is the funny part about uh, being in the suburbs here in Colorado is that if you look at my one street it's like me and Aaron we live across the street we brew know evan who's in our club he also lives in our neighborhood but just on my street i think like half the dudes i know on this one street all have homebrew set up so it's just like everybody (laughs) brews it's it's, kind of nice (laughs) so welcome to colorado well guys thank you very much for coming on the podcast uh as always it makes me really happy to have you on the show i'm i'm stoked to have a podcast out it's been a while it's great to be back and uh thanks for coming on the show again Mm -hmm. I'd like to thank Aaron and Ryan for both coming on the podcast. A great conversation as always, and just a great chat about beer. That's what we do here. You can always find us on all of our socials. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Look for us at Homebrewing DIY. We'll be a little more active on those as well. And you can also head on over to homebrewingdiy.beer. That's where you're going to find all of our blog posts, our podcast episodes, everything. You can subscribe there to your favorite podcast, whatever player, whatever you want. You can also head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewingdiy. And there you can support us. Well, that's it for this week. We're going to talk to you next week on homebrewing. DOI.